We're going to continue our new series. We're starting a new series through 1 Corinthians 5 through 10. Um, so we started 1 Corinthians back uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. We did the spring series we called True Unity. So if you want to kind of go back and catch up on where we were, 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, that was in the spring. You can listen to the podcast or find the old videos for that. And kind of the emphasis for true unity was unity in Jesus. Uh, the Corinthians had this problem of wanting to be flashy, be impressive, like, look at me, I'm saved because I'm so wise or I'm so rich or I'm so powerful. And Paul was calling them back to a humble faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So that, that foundation is important as we move into this middle section, chapters 5 through 10. This series is called The Messed Up Church. So the messed up church is where Paul is calling this messed up church back to Jesus. And it's really important for us because, man, we're, we're just the same as them, right? Like, we can't judge them as if we're better than them. Our, our churches today have the same issues that the church had in the first century. So oftentimes, if you read through the New Testament, uh, the church in Corinth, the letters of Corinthians, just kind of jump out as being particularly messed up, right? Like, if you've read your Bible much, you're like, man, they had serious issues. Uh, but as we look at these issues, it's amazing that Paul is, is saying that they really are a church, that they really do seem to be believers, and he's calling them to repent from their worldliness, from their secular ideas, and to, to trust in Jesus as he's revealed in the Scriptures. So this week, the sermon is called Judge by Grace. Judge by Grace, and we'll be in chapter 6. Last week we did chapter 5. This week it's chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. Next week we'll finish chapter 6. And it can be found on page 955 in the black Bibles that are under the chairs. If you want to follow along in one of those, you can flip to page 955. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And because judgment is such a hot topic in our culture, um, I thought it would be helpful to start with a story. Um, So there's a favorite verse of non-Christians a favorite saying of Jesus, and it's, judge not, lest you be judged. Have you ever heard that before? You ever heard anybody quote that one before? Like, for people that are, that are not followers of Christ, that's generally their favorite verse, right? Um, and so we want to affirm, Jesus really did say that, it really is important, but sometimes it's taken out of context, and so there are different ways that the word judgment is used. So I just I kind of set this story up for you. Imagine, if you will, a Sunday school teacher. He's reading his Bible. He's excited to teach, we'll say, fifth grade boys and girls. This is not a Sunday school teacher at our church, okay? Um, so this is just a Sunday school teacher that's studying the Bible and wants to teach the Bible to his kids. And he's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's really studying the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he comes across this verse, judge not lest you be judged, in Matthew 7, verse 1. And he's like, this is great. I've heard this a lot on the news. I've read it a lot in magazines. And here it is in the Bible. This is great. I'm going to memorize this verse. And I'm going to look for opportunities throughout my day to apply this verse. So he memorizes this verse. He's looking for opportunities to apply it. He goes to the grocery store. And when he's at the parking lot in the giant grocery store, he sees this young man pulling a purse away from an old lady. And this old lady sees the Sunday school teacher and cries out, hey, this criminal is trying to steal my purse. And the Sunday school teacher, with great confidence, because he's memorized this verse, says, ma'am, judge not, lest ye be judged. And he walks in the store. Isn't that a great story of applying the scriptures? You all like that? Nobody like You don't like that. You shouldn't like that, right? I use the story because you're supposed to just intuitively be like, gross. That's not right. That's a misuse of the scriptures. 
And I, I use that to just connect with you intuitively and say, we, we know that sometimes that, that's used the wrong way. So it is right and good for us to judge right and wrong. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus even says later on, judge prophets and teachers by their fruit, right? So, so it's right to judge sometimes, and it's wrong to judge sometimes. And we need the Holy Spirit, we need the Scriptures to help us understand when to do one and when to do the other. So let me just kind of set this up in context before I read the text. Judge not lest you be judged. In Matthew 7, it's there and it's important. And Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount to these legalists, to these Pharisees who would say, look at me, I've kept the law, I'm better than other people, I'm saved and God must bless me because I've been so good. These are religious conservatives that think they're saved by how good they are. And so we need that, right? Because we're religious people. We're here in a church. We need to hear that message and say, Man, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I need to hear what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We've got to pay attention. Jesus is very clearly saying, don't offer your resume to God and say, look at all that I've done. He, he wants us to come broken and say, I'm a sinner. I am hungry. I'm bankrupt. I'm empty. Jesus, I need you. And in context, that's what Jesus is talking about. We judge not lest you be judged. We need to hear it. It's an important message. But he's not saying, never, ever, under any circumstances, should you ever judge anything. But that's not the point of that text. So we came in 1 Corinthians 5 last week where he said, you need to judge sins in the church, right? Because following Jesus means turning from sin and saying, the sin can't save me, but Jesus can. And we explained last week sexual immorality, but other sins like greediness and reviling, talking smack about people. He just throws a grab bag of sins. He's like, all sins are sin. And he says, here's the process. You turn from those sins and say, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus will save you and then follow him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to move in that direction of obeying what he says. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. We're going to stumble. We're going to get up. We're going to stumble. We're going to get up. As a community of saints, we're going to help each other together to obey Jesus. But sometimes people say, I don't care what Jesus says, and I'm going to do whatever I want. And in that circumstance, chapter 5, he said, no, we should, we should judge that and say that's not okay. You, you need to actually obey Jesus because it's going to confuse people about our message. So that's what Paul was talking about last week. Now this week, he's continuing it. And he's saying, now you got this other problem. In chapter 6, you're going to pagan courts because you have financial disagreements with each other. And it's so important that you get your money out of this other guy that you're dragging them into pagan court. And he says, I don't want you taking it to pagan judges. I want you judging these small claims issues in the church. I want you to deal with it like family. I want you to deal with it like community. So just right there, that's three different ways that judging is used in the New Testament. Let's read our text for this week. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, okay? Starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare... Go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous or the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our hope is not in our sin. Our hope is in Jesus. Were we all sinners? Yeah. Yeah, we were all sinners. But our hope is no longer in that sin. Our hope is now in Jesus. I'm going to ask that Jesus would help us, that his spirit would meet us here to teach us this. More hard texts, as I said, just this whole series, it's going to be difficult texts, but we believe that the gospel is so sweet that even these hard texts are worth it and, and valuable for us, and they help us to understand who he is, that he, that he speaks to us through his words. So let me pray and ask him to meet us here. God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that your spirit would meet us here and help us to hear these hard texts. They're, they're things that we've been culturally trained to recoil from. And so, God, we ask that you would give us extra grace, that you'd give us open minds and open hearts, that we would be thoughtful and we would be listeners. We would reconsider the ways that we've been trained, the ways that we've been raised, and we would consider what you have to say. We pray that you'd speak to us and that we would be listeners that obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea, to summarize it, a lot of language about going to law and court, right, is that they're uh, having disputes, right? They're arguing about property or money or business disputes. Uh, Corinth was a very capitalistic society. You know, they were growing businesses. These were like freedmen and uh, former slaves and former military people and people that had come from maybe poor backgrounds that are now building businesses and becoming rich very quickly in Corinth. And so a lot of values that, that we would affirm, that's great, work hard, make your money, but they had kind of gone overboard with this, and they had a cutthroat attitude where if anybody crossed them, they were going to take them to court, they were going to sue them, they were going to get their money out of them. And Paul's saying, hey, slow, slow down. Number one, these courts were corrupt. It was just kind of common knowledge in Corinth that they were favoritism courts, they were corrupt courts, they were courts where those with more money could always take advantage of those with less money. He's like, slow down. We need to settle these things in the church. Because when you're dragging your dirty laundry out into the public courts, you're giving Jesus a bad name. We need to settle these things like family. That's, that's the big idea what he's saying. So I've got a, a three-point outline here. Number one, Paul's going to charge them to watch out for insecurity. That's really helpful for us to see. Watch out for insecurity. He's going to talk about the judgment at the end of days that we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So he's kind of trying to give them an elevated view of themselves, and he's saying, don't fight, scratch, and take advantage of people because you're insecure, but remember that you're sons and daughters of God, and that'll help you to get along. The second point is he's going to say, embrace sacrifice. Embrace sacrifice. Be like Jesus, because Jesus knew who he was. He was willing to sacrifice for others. He didn't have to fight and take from others. He could give. So watch out for insecurity and embrace sacrifice. And then the third point, run to Jesus. That, that ending part where he revealed like, yeah, no sin is going to inherit eternal life, but Jesus will. Jesus can wash you. 
Jesus can justify, sanctify, clean, make you whole. Run to Jesus. So three-point outline, watch out for insecurity, embrace sacrifice, and run to Jesus. The first point is watch out for insecurity. I say watch out for insecurity because when you believe that you're on your own spiritually, you start to believe that you've got to fight and push others out of the way to impress God. And the Corinthians really struggled with this. Again, I'd encourage you to go back and read chapters one through four. He's like, no, you're not, you're not saved by power. You're not saved by pride. You're not saved by your skills. You're saved by Jesus. And what that does is that humbles you and that enables you to defer to others instead of pushing them out of the way. Man, picture this that I'll always remember is when our kids first went to school, we'd raise them to be very kind and gracious to each other. And I remember going to visit the lunch table at school. Any of you ever visited your elementary school lunch room? And so, man, the bell rings, and these kids would, like, tear into the lunch room and, like, push the other kids out of the way and slide onto the bench because they wanted to edge out the other kids to get the best spot at the lunch table. And I was horrified. <laughs> I was like, this is not the Christian way I raised my children, right? But that was just, they're like, hey, man, that's just how it works here, right? That's kind of what the Corinthians are doing. They're like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay for us to be mean and selfish in court or in business, right? Because that's just the way it works. You might think that at work. Like, well, yeah, we're supposed to be nice Christians on Sundays, but at work, I've got to be cutthroat, and I've got to push people out of the way, right? Paul's saying, no, I want you to be consistent. I want you always to be gracious. Watch out for insecurity. Insecurity makes you feel like I don't have enough, so I've got to elbow and push others out of the way to get my spot at the table. So this is a very important thing for us to pay attention because we can do the same thing as well. He answers this bad behavior with like, Remember who you are. Remember who you are. You're going to judge with Jesus at the end of time. Look back at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you dare? He, he is shocked. He's appalled that they would do this. It seems insane to him. And he goes on and explains why. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? It's like, we're, we're going to judge the world. The saints will judge the world. Now, this is future tense. This confused me when I was studying this week because chapter 5, I don't know if you remember last week, Paul was like, I don't judge the world. Do you remember that? Just last week, he was like, we're not judging the world. We're not judging outsiders. We let God do that. And now he's like, don't you know we will judge the world? Here's the difference. Present tense, future tense, right? How has Jesus come now? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I've died for you. I've given my life for you. Jesus comes now in grace. How's Jesus going to come back at the end of time? He's going to come back ruling and reigning in judgment. It's continually the preaching and acts like, this guy rose from the dead. You better watch out. He, he rules the universe. Be careful. So there's this future judgment. There's this present grace. So chapter 5, Paul's like, we don't judge the world, it's grace. We, we invite them to come to Jesus. All sins are forgiven. Come on. But he's like, but remember, in the future, there's going to be a reckoning, and the saints will be on the team of Jesus, and we will rule and reign. There's some cross-references for this, because it's kind of a crazy concept. Uh, if, if you like to study these things, you can write these down. It's Daniel 7.22, Matthew 19.28. In Revelation 20, verse 4. So Daniel 7, 22 is a vision of the saints or the holy ones judging, ruling, and reigning with the Son of Man. 
Matthew 19, 28, he's talking about the 12 tribes, the like 12 thrones. Again, it's this kind of concept of ruling and reigning. So not judging in the sense of like judgmentalism, right? But just this like Jesus is the king of the universe and we will be the prince and princesses of the universe with Jesus. We'll be a part of his leadership, his rule, his reign. And then Revelation 20, verse 4, same concept there. Uh, those who have been beheaded, those who are martyrs, those who belong to Jesus are ruling and reigning from his throne. So it's this thing that's taught again and again in Scripture. And Paul's like, remember, you have this ultimate position of authority as, as the little brothers and little sisters of Jesus, the king of the universe. And so the reverse of that is, if we're edging people out and pushing people out of the way and fighting for what's ours, we're saying, I'm insecure. I don't have a secure spot. I'm needy. I'm a spiritual orphan. We have to remember that we're adopted in love into the family of God. He loves us. He's provided for us. That's, that's where Paul is trying to take them here. So he says, don't you know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? How much more the, the little things, right? Like if we're going to ultimately judge in the future, how much more can we work out little things? How much more could we give up our preferences and get along with each other is really what he's trying to say here. Verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? This verse, verse 4, is a little confusing in the Greek, and so uh, commentators and translators and people that know way more about the language than I do disagree on this, right? There's two different ways you can take this. One is he's saying, why would you lay it before those who have no standing in the church, meaning pagans? Um, The other way to say it is because the tense can be translated differently. The other way to say it is you should lay it before those who have no standing in the church, meaning kind of like the losers of the church. (laughs) Either way, the point is you shouldn't be doing what you're doing, right? And so whenever we come across a difficult verse, we interpret it through the clearer verses. This is a Bible study principle. Um, So the next verse helps us to clarify what he's saying. Verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Like, like here's the point. In the church, you can figure it out. And he's digging at them because they had great pride in their worldly wisdom. He's like, you think you're worldly wise, but you're not wise enough to to settle some cases? Really? So the way I take verse 4, I take it in line with the King James. The King James is the version that says it slightly different that makes it more about members of the church. He's like, why don't you... Let those in the church who have no standing settle the cases. And I believe what he's saying is, even the dumbest people in the people of God can settle some cases, right? <laughs> like, I think that's what he's saying. But again, th- that's less important. Bible study principle, we, we work with the clear verses, and then we work to the less clear verses. Uh, on the other side of that, that's a sign of cults, a, a mark of cults, as they say, we figured out this impossible verse that nobody knows. I'm serious. It's like a common thing. Cults are like, hey, here's this one weird verse that you've never been taught before. We've got it answered, right? Orthodox, historic Christianity says we're going to stick with the main things and work out from there, okay? So that's just kind of a a thing to keep in the back of your head as you are involved in different uh, houses of faith and places of worship. So as I say this to your shame, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers, right? His, his frustration is like, why are you dragging your dirty laundry out in front of the unbelievers? Like, settle, settle your stuff so that our job as the church is pointing the unbelieving world to Jesus, to his goodness. 
you don't want the unbelieving world to look at us and see us bickering and fighting. Sad thing is, often, the unbelieving world looks at us and sees us bickering and fighting. Paul says this is not how it should be. Again, go back to chapters 1 through 4. We should be unified in the gospel. We should be humble. We should be able to come together and say, man, I'm not sure about a lot of things, but I know I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And that should profoundly enable us to get along with each other and lay down our preferences. Any of you ever uh, watched Judge Judy? Anybody ever seen that before? I grabbed a picture here of Judge Judy online. I was asking my son about this the other day. I was like, have you ever watched any of these shows? Like, we used to watch Judge Wapner when I was a kid. I think he's passed away now. There's a, there's a million versions of this. You know, small claims court or like the, another version of this that's kind of grotesque is like the psychologist show, you know, where there's the psychologist also kind of serves as the pagan judge settling matters. And people are just airing their dirty laundry in front of everybody. Uh, my son was like, oh, I've, I've seen those shows. I, I see those at the oil change place, right? Like, that's... <laughs> That's where the really good television is, right? Um, this, is, this is an example of what these courts were. There are these small claims courts where pagan judges were settling things and people were coming in selfishness. They're like, this person betrayed me and I can't stand them and I need you to make them be nice to me. And Paul's like, if you're, if you're brothers and sisters in Christ, you should, you should be able to get along. You should be able to love one another. And I think, again, the essential problem, because his solution is, don't you know you're going to judge the saints at the end of time? You're going to rule and reign with Jesus? So that means the problem is they don't remember that. We don't remember that. Our problem is our insecurity. Our problem is thinking, man, I know Jesus told me I'm adopted into his family, but I don't feel like it, so I think I need to fight and scrap and push others out of the way to earn my place at the table. So some applications. Uh, Number one, consider, are we, are we taking on the world's standards of success, money, power, riches, or are we thinking of Jesus' standards of success? Number two, he's saying, don't, don't bring shame on the people of God, right? Are the actions that we're taking publicly helping people to see both the grace and the justice of the Lord? Or are the actions we're taking publicly pointing to us? Are people seeing us stand up for our rights, pound our chest, saying this is the way it's got to be? To be really careful about this in our culture because our culture has a right and good commitment to fundamental human rights, right? Like law and justice are good things. I would argue we want to vote for these things, but we don't want to be characterized by thumping our chest and demanding our rights. And so that's a tricky line for us to walk as followers of Jesus. Do I think a just society stands for what is true and good and right and has laws? Yeah, of course. But I don't want to be publicly known for saying, I demand my rights. I want people to look at me and see me looking like Jesus, saying I've got everything, but I'm I'm willing to sacrifice for others. The other thing he calls us to is to remember the victory of the end times, right? He's giving this vision, this eschatological vision, Vision, eschaton is, is the Greek word for end time. So he's like saying, think about the future. You're going to rule and reign with Christ. And so I want to just talk for a real brief second about, well, maybe a few minutes, a real brief minute about the end times. Our world is in a shaky, weird place right now. A lot of people think maybe these are the end times. I've joked with friends like, it's kind of weird to live in the end times because it's a lot slower than I thought it would be, right? 
Like, it kind of seems like the end of the world, but it's also kind of slow and weird, you know? I thought it'd be more dramatic than this when the zombies came, but, you know, here it is. So just to be clear, I don't really know if these are the end times or not, but at one level, Jesus said we should live our entire life as if we're living in the end times. A strict definition, the end times started with the resurrection of Jesus. So there's kind of like a final end, end times, right? But we're, we're already, we already got one foot in the end times as, as soon as Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus gave very, very clear instructions about what to do in the end times. Very clear. What Christians often do is we argue about the order of events. So Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus lays out some stuff about the end times. In Matthew 24, his disciples are like, what are the signs of the end of the age? And he's like, here you go. And then for 2,000 years, we've been arguing about what he said in Matthew 24. Hard to understand. I've taught on it. I might teach differently next time I teach it. You know, I'm like, I'm not sure. But then at the end of chapter 24, and going into chapter 25, he gives such clear instructions of how to live. And so as the leadership of our church, we're going to say what we're sure of is Jesus wins and Jesus is coming back. We're sure of that. The order of events, we're not, you know, the different opinions, history of Christianity, interpreting things in, in different ways. But we're sure about our instructions. He gives three parables and says, this is how I want you to live. The first parable, he says, I want you to not be like a wicked servant that abuses the other servants. I want you to be like the good servant, the generous servant that takes care of the other servants. That's the first parable he gives. This is how you should live in the end times. Second parable he gives is sometimes called the parable of the wedding virgins. One of the more confusing parables in the New Testament because we we don't have any idea how weddings took place in the ancient world. And so my summary is this. He says, be ready to celebrate the party when the groom returns. That's the point of that parable. So what does that mean for us? In the end times, not knowing when it's going to happen, be ready for Jesus' to return. Be ready and anticipating his return. Ready to celebrate. That's what that wedding party parable is about. And then the third parable is a famous one, the parable of the talents. Master gives different talents. Two guys invest their talents because they believe the master is generous. Third guy does not invest his talents because he thinks the master is unfair and evil. And the master says, well, by what you believe about me, you'll be judged. If you believe I'm generous, you'll be judged generously. If you believe I'm treacherous and evil, you'll be judged with justice. And so there's this scary parable about burying your talent. If, if we're burying our talents in this world, if we're throwing away the skills and the gifts we've been given, it's because we don't believe the master is generous. But if we believe that God is gracious to us in Jesus, that he is a generous master, we'll, we'll share what we have. We'll spend our lives for God's glory. Wh- whatever your skills are, soldier, teacher, doctor, lawyer, you're going to use your gifts for the glory of God and to bless your neighbors. That's what you're going to do because you believe your master is generous. So we have clear instructions. And if we're not doing those things, I would say it's rooted in our insecurity. We don't know how solid and secure we are in Christ. The next point is that we should embrace sacrifice. He hits this in verse 7 and 8. He, again, is rooting it in 2 and 3. Don't you know you're going to judge the world? Verse 2 and 3, you're going you're to judge the world with Jesus. You're going to rule and reign. Verse 7 and 8, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. So he's saying, even the fact that you're doing this shows that you're, you're off kilter, that, that your mind is in the wrong place. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. 
One of the most painful things that I do is counsel people that are on the edge of divorce or getting divorced, trying to encourage them not to divorce each other. And this is a really helpful verse when you're in a hard relationship. Why not rather be wronged? Why are you trying to get me on your side and tell me how evil your partner is? Like, why not just bless them the way that Jesus has blessed you? He calls us to that in every relationship, right? Marriage, it's often the hardest place to apply this. He's saying to embrace sacrifice. Jesus embodies this in John chapter 13 and in Philippians chapter 2. In John chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet, and it's rooted in his identity. It says Jesus knew who he was, knew he had come from the Father, knew he was going back to the Father. Then what does he do? He stoops, and he washes the disciples' feet. Embrace sacrifice. If you know who you are as a son or daughter of God, that will enable you to stoop and serve others. Philippians 2, we studied this a while back in the Philippians series. Jesus lives this substitutionary life. He was the human we should have been. Not only that, he died a death he didn't deserve, but we did. He took our place on the cross. He took all of our sin. He gives us his perfect righteousness, double substitution, taking our sin, giving us his goodness. And he does this, Philippians 2 says, freely giving up his equality with God knowing full well that he was in perfect union with God, but giving that up. So in the same way, we can embrace sacrifice if we really know who we are, if we have our identity set. God loves me. Jesus died for me. That's the only thing that's going to enable me to serve others or be patient with others or defer to others or to be kind to others. There's this default way that Christians are to live, and that is sacrificing for others, embracing sacrifice. Now, let me explain what this does not mean. If you struggle with codependency, you need to have some clarity about this. I'd recommend a book called Boundaries, written by a Christian psychologist. So here's what this doesn't look like. So codependency, just to define, uh, just rough overgeneralization, but codependency would be, I'm not saved by Jesus' sacrifice, but I'm saved by sacrificing for others. It's where you find your identity completely in giving of yourself. So much so that when you give of yourself and it's not appreciated, you're angry at people, right? Oftentimes. Man, I'm confessing here. And so codependency is not the same thing as the gospel, right? The gospel says Jesus gave to you, now give to others. Codependency is I'm going to give to others and Jesus must bless me for it. And I'm going to demand my rights because I've given so much and so faithfully, right? And so you get in this weird web where you're giving to get. So codependency, you need to hear this. It's okay to speak up. You need to practice phrases like this. I don't think that's a good idea. You can say that, okay? I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, Here's another phrase. I don't think that's right. You can speak up and say that as well. I don't think that's right. So embracing Christian sacrifice doesn't mean you never speak up. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that's right. Here's another one. This is really hard for those of us that struggle with this. I don't want to do that. It's okay to have wants. Did you know that? Like you can want things. It's all right. I don't don't want to do that. So we need to speak up. Now now I want to take this to a level that's a little deeper, another category. So codependence, that doesn't mean you embrace sacrifice to earn your salvation. Also, if you're being abused, he's talking about a different situation here, small claims court, 
being greedy, wanting to get money out of people, lawsuits. That's different than, are you being abused? You can forgive your abuser and call the police. You can forgive your abuser because Christ has forgiven you and call the police. Because you love Jesus, because you've been loved by Jesus, you don't want that abuser to continue to abuse others. You can do both. So that's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying that the church should be an environment where we just overlook abuse and who cares, right? No. Call the police. Stop that abuse. Speak up. But then there's this general posture of I'm not going to be selfish, but I'm going to give myself for others because Jesus loved me. But if you're secure in Christ, it enables you to have the freedom to say one day, yeah, I don't, I don't have time to do that, right? Like at the church, we're one of those weird churches where we say we want you to serve and give because you believe Jesus has given to you. But I'm not going to come up to you and say, you're not, you're not giving enough, you're not serving, right? Well, I mean, I might if you're not doing anything. But generally... <laughs> We're not going to twist your arm, right? Like, I, you've got to give so that I approve of you. You've got to give so that God is pleased with you. No, God is pleased with you in the gospel. Because of that, you give. The order is really important in the spiritual life. So I think a, a great way to think about this, to kind of fight this selfishness that the Corinthians were struggling with, is financial giving. Financial giving is a great discipline. Um, churches in our area abuse this a lot, right? They, they often defer to the, if you give enough, God will be forced to bless you. That's not what we're teaching. We would teach, because Jesus gave everything to you, you have abundance, now give to serve others. So we would say it's right and good, if you're a part of the church, to give to support the ministry of the church. If you're just a listener, if you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, we, we don't want you to give, right? We want you to listen and hear and understand who Jesus is. But if you believe that Jesus has given to you, we want to encourage you to give financially. We need money to operate, right? And so we would gladly take your money. We just don't want you to think that you're somehow like indebting God to yourself by doing that, right? We want you to understand, no, it's because Jesus is freely given to you. And so we encourage people to give financially. We're a little bit behind financially right now as a church. We're at 80% of what we need to operate according to our budget. Uh, if, if more people can't give, you know, we'll reduce what we spend. We'll use some of our savings, and, and it'll be fine, but we want to invite you to partner with us in ministry. Paul lays out a really beautiful picture of it in 2 Corinthians, the next book to the Corinthians. Second letter of Corinthians, chapter 8 and chapter 9, he, he just talks about this beautiful balance of how Jesus has given his riches to us, and so we give and invest spiritually in others. If you want to start giving, but you're still not sure about this church, I want to give you other opportunities to give, Right? because I believe it's good for you. A couple of ministries that we think are fantastic that we partner with are Foster Love Bell County and Hope Pregnancy Center um, with the new abortion laws in Texas. I think there's even greater need to support moms in need and young families that are struggling. And Foster Love Bell County helps fostering and adopting. As a matter of fact, we're going to announce in a few weeks opportunities for you to train uh, to be a certified child care worker to support other foster families. Um, but you can give financially to them as well. Hope Pregnancy Center helps moms deal with these unwanted pregnancies and what do I do? And um, So we come alongside them financially as well. I encourage you to give to those ministries. If you're not sure about the church, give somewhere, help others because Jesus has given to you. It's a good discipline uh, to grow in your understanding to embrace sacrifice. But of course, we talk about all these other things too. We, we give up our time, we give up our emotions. We, you know, we defer 
to serve others in the name of Jesus. Again, not to earn blessing, but because we've been blessed in Christ. Last point, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He's going to list some sins again and say, none of these sins can save you, but Jesus can. And again, this is the most controversial thing that we say at our church. We actually believe there's such a thing as sin, okay? Um, one of the ways people, modern people deal with shame and with sin and the pain of that is by saying, I'm going to tell myself there's no such thing as a category of sin. That there's no possibility of God being displeased with anything I do. And I would say that's, that's not a safe way to go. God actually says there are, there are things that you can do, that I can do, that offend God and are destructive to our own souls. Another way to think about sin is God is saying he loves you more than you love yourself. So he desires for you to live in a way that leads to, you know, your own flourishing and the flourishing of others. So we believe the Bible reveals that because human beings, we have this incredible ability to rationalize our own behavior. So we look to the scriptures and we believe very strongly that the scriptures has a consistent morality between the Old and New Testaments. We started to talk about that some last week. We've got our uh, statements in the back and books and things you can look for for information there. But it's popular in the modern world to mix up the confusion about the ceremonial law and the moral law. We don't obey the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. We're not the nation state of Israel in 1000 BC. We live by different ceremonial and judicial rules. But we do obey the moral law of the Old Testament, which is the same repeated moral law in the New Testament. Things like sexual immorality and greed and lying and dishonesty. These, these things are consistent from the Old to the New Testament. So Paul gives this list in verse 9. He says, starting in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So going back to verse 8, he says, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. In verse 9, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous, that could be translated as wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's saying, you got this problem, you're wronging each other. Don't you know that wrongers, <laughs> those who do wrong, will not inherit eternal life? So this is a really strong warning. He's like, don't continue to sin. Just like in chapter 5, he's like, it's one thing to sin and fall down, be forgiven, and we try to obey Jesus together, right? It's another thing to say, I don't care what God says. I just want my money, Right? That's a different category. So he's warning them. And then he gives this whole list. Don't you know that the unrighteous or those who are wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I just want to clarify, we see different lists in the New Testament. Paul does this often. He'll give different lists and he's typically trying to offend two or three tribes at the same time. So for us as modern people in our society, again, rough overgeneralization, but we often tend to have people in traditional culture that tend to think it's not that big of a deal to be greedy, and then we have people in progressive culture that think it's not that big a deal to be sexually immoral. Paul's saying, no, both, both are a big deal, right? He, just, he does this in all of his different lists. This list has a particular flavor because of the sins of Corinth. Other lists like Galatians have a particular flavor, but he's always offending every tribe. No matter where you grew up, no matter where you went to school, 
no matter your ethnic background or your social background, your tribe has some sins that you need to repent of, and Jesus is your only hope. And so Paul does this beautiful thing where he's like, yeah, all, all sins are sin, but he's particularly listing some from different categories that are problems they struggle with, and he says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So again, we've got to recognize this is hard for us to hear, modern people. We don't like the idea of God saying anything's a sin. We just got to recognize that. Put it out on the table. Generally in our culture, we don't like that idea. Or we have a more traditional mindset where we say, we like the idea of sins, but we want them to just be the sins of the other tribe, right? Like my tribe is right, the other tribe is wrong. And my tribe is saved by being good. The other tribe's going to hell for being bad. Jesus says, no, you're all going to hell without me. That's, that's what Jesus says, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the, the glory of God. None of us have any hope apart from Jesus. So if you struggle with any of these sins or any other sin in the Bible, don't say, God, that's so unfair. Why are you picking on me? He's picking on everybody, okay? He says, you need me. And so this is, this is the point of this point is run to Jesus. He's the answer. Run to Jesus. So I said this last week, if you struggle with certain sins, don't don't fixate on this and say it's not fair because you don't struggle like I struggle. No, we all struggle. All human beings struggle. And if you don't struggle and you think you're just right and good, Jesus talked to the Pharisees about that and said, probably you don't know the gospel. But all who struggle, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises us, run to Jesus He gives this list of sins. None of these will inherit, but he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's your salvation. Justified means you're made right. That means God is pleased with you. That means God likes you. He's not begrudgingly letting you into his kingdom. He delights in you through Jesus. You were washed. You were clean. You were holy in his sight. You need to be reminded of this. Run to Jesus, and he will embrace you in his arms. I grabbed a picture of people getting baptized. Uh, this was just a random pic I found online. We had 13 people get baptized last week. It was fantastic. I know some of you got to be there. It was so encouraging to see people say, I'm not, I'm not trusting in these sins, whatever they are. Whatever this list of my old sins are anymore, I'm trusting in Jesus. I know that Jesus died on the cross to save me, that he gives me his resurrection life. It's the beauty of baptism. It's identifying with Jesus. And that's what Paul is calling them to here. He's saying, remember your identity. Remember who you are. Ephesians 5, as it tells us to flee sexual immorality and other sins and selfishness, it says, no, remember who you are. Who you are is you're loved, you're saved, you're forgiven. Because of that, now begin to live in a new way. Are you going to stumble? Yeah. Am I going to stumble? Yeah. But we're going we're to pursue Jesus together. We're a community of stumblers that are following Christ together. So one, one application for this is I want you to work on your testimony because this is something that Paul sees a lot of power in. Uh, your testimony is kind of a Christianese way. We talk about giving your story of what Jesus has done in your life. So work on your story. What has Jesus done for you? Who were you before? Who are you now? What did you trust in before? What was your false God? Maybe it was money, power, pleasure. Who's your God now? Hopefully it's Jesus the forgiving God, the loving God, the gracious God. So practice sharing your story with other people and then also pay attention 
to the, the line between primary and secondary identity. So a large part of the debate around sexuality is the confusion of primary and secondary identity. I think Paul's pointing out it's helpful to say, yeah, I, I struggled with these things. Sometimes we can connect with other people. If you struggled with homosexuality, if you've struggled with greed, if you've struggled with insecurity, whatever it might be that you struggled with, be like, yeah, that's, that's been a real part of my life. That's, that's a part of my story, but that's not my primary identity. My primary identity is a son or daughter of God. And learn to differentiate between primary and secondary identity. There are things in our past that are sinful that we need to let go of, and there are things in our past that are neutral. There are parts of our past, secondary identity, that are neutral, and it, that'll continue to be a part of who we are. You know, our gifts, our talents, our wiring, our culture, our style, preferences, and that'll go with us. But there are other things that we need to filter, we need to sort. Discipleship is sorting through those issues. As you grow as a disciple of Jesus, as you learn to be sanctified, to be made more holy in Christ, it's, it's recognizing that distinction. Jesus is pleased with me through the gospel, and then there are certain things he wants me to let go of. Other things, he's like, yeah, run with that. Use that for my glory. This is really important for us. A lot of you are very gifted. A lot of you are very strong. A lot of you are very talented. Don't place your identity in those gifts, in those strengths, in those talents. Put your identity in Christ and what he's done for you. And then use those gifts and those strengths, those talents to serve other people. Because there's been so much debate, particularly about sexual issues in the last few years, I'd love to talk to you more about that if you have particular questions. I've had a lot of conversations with people. We've put some resources in the back. Our, our church wrote a statement on sexuality that's a part of our constitution, our, our bylaws, and I just copied a couple of pages of that, and that's in the back on the table, a little photocopy. I've also attached to that, Tim Keller did a review of a couple of books that would argue that homosexuality is uh, allowed in a biblical worldview, and he lays out a review saying, no, that's actually not true. That's not in keeping with history or with the meaning of the Greek words or with the biblical text. And so that's been thrown around a lot in our culture. Um, one particular thing that's said is like, oh, well, Paul, Paul didn't really understand our kind of evolved, modern, loving homosexuality. He only, he only understood kind of the brutal Roman exploitative homosexuality. And I would argue for sure Rome was exploitative and there were some brutal, terrible things that are different now, but, but part of that difference is, is how Christianity has changed culture. <laughs> That's part of why things are different now. But ancient people understood all range of sexuality. Like, everything we do today, they were doing back then, right? There's, so, so that's kind of, that's a, that's a weak argument, short-sighted argument. But again, if you're hearing that and you're struggling with it, I'd love to, I'd love to reason with you through those things. Um, you could email me or you could pick up the, the statement we have on the back. We've got a lot of literature on that. Well, I want to wrap up here. Judge by grace. Judge by grace. As I said, this word judge is used in a lot of different ways throughout the scriptures. And I want to come back to a way that Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16, a famous verse, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. A verse most of you have heard, even if you didn't grow up in the church. And then he continues in verse 17 and 18, and he he uses the word judge, the Greek word. In the English translation I'm reading, he uses, uh, the translation is condemn, but it's the same Greek word, krenomai, for judge. And he says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn or judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Do you remember we talked about this present tense, future tense, right? Present tense, Jesus came to save. Jesus is saying, come to me and I will forgive you. So he's saying he didn't come to judge or condemn, but that the world would be saved. He goes on and says, whoever believes in him is not judged. All you have to do is trust him and the judgment is taken away. But whoever does not believe is condemned or judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's an ultimate judgment that's the most important for us to think about. Do you recognize that all of us stand judged because of our sin? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that Jesus is our only hope. And if you believe in him, if you trust in him, he takes the judgment for you and he gives you his grace. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have given us grace in Jesus. Help us to trust you. Help us to receive it and then live out that grace for others. Help us to to embrace sacrifice, to, to love others because we're secure in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.